All right, so we continue uh, this morning in our study of the 1689 Confession by looking at the chapter entitled Effectual Calling. And I'll explain a little bit more as we get into this first paragraph, especially what we mean by uh, effectual calling. But I want to go ahead and, and dive right in to this, uh, to this chapter. So if I could have somebody volunteer for us and read paragraph one there from chapter 10 on effectual calling. Those whom God has predestined unto life, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit. Out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlighten their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving to them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills, and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good, and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ, yet so as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. Amen. Okay, I want to start with the end of the first sentence here, uh, in this first paragraph, which refers to God effectually calling those he has predestined to life. Um, in chapter 3 of the Confession uh, that we looked at several weeks ago, which was on God's decree, we learned that God, for the manifestation of his glory, elected or predestined some men and angels to life. And it's important here to remember that election is not the same thing as salvation, uh, but election unto life always leads to salvation. And that salvation happens in space and time, as the confession states here, as, as God has ordained. And that is what the beginning of the first sentence states here. It's a little bit different than, than what Pedo read there. Um, but if you have the handout, you'll see there, the first part of that says, in God's appointed and acceptable time. So if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, before the foundation of the world, God chose to have mercy upon you by electing you for salvation through Jesus Christ. And he ordained a time in which he would bring that salvation that he elected you for to pass. Every one of us have come to know that if you are a believer in Jesus. There was a time when you believed the gospel, that you were elected to believe before the foundation of of the world. And what the writers are doing here is they, as they talk about this aspect of this timing that God has done and how he's effectually calling is they're distinguishing between the general call of the gospel and the effectual call of the gospel. And in order to kind of explain the difference between those two, I want to kind of give you a scenario that I think will be helpful in you thinking through this. Let's say that you have uh, five unbelieving neighbors that you've invited over for dinner. And on this particular night, the Lord gives you an opportunity to share the gospel with these five unbelievers as you're sitting around the dinner table. And this sharing of the gospel that's happening with them is what is called the general call of the gospel. Now, as the night comes to an end, your neighbors leave except one. This one wants to stay back and wants to talk more about what it is that you shared at dinner. 
And as you have that opportunity to explain what it was that you were sharing, the Spirit of God so works in that person's life that they become convicted deeply of their sin and their rebellion against God and the wrath that they deserve. And he calls them to himself, and they repent, and they believe the gospel genuinely right there at your kitchen table. That is what is called the effectual call of the gospel. The gospel went out generally to those five, but on this night it was ordained by God that this person would repent and believe the gospel right there in your home. That's the effectual call that is being spoken of here. I want to look at a few texts that that show this distinction between the general call and the effectual call of the gospel. And the first one there that is noted by the confession is Romans 8, verse 30. There's tons of scripture, as there always is, thankfully. That's why we we love the confession, because it's rooted in the scriptures. Uh, We're not going to go through all those. Um, But I encourage you to do so as you have time. But I just want to pick out a few of these. Okay, so Romans 8.30 here says, And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Now, what calling is being spoken of here in this passage? Is it the general call of the gospel or the effectual call of the gospel? Okay, good. Why, why is it, how do we know it's the effectual call of the gospel and not the general call of, of the gospel? And more specifically, the justification, the glorification that follows. Yes, exactly. Okay, so we know that the gospel generally goes out, right? But not everybody believes it. Not everybody embraces the gospel. Uh, but these who have been called by God, and we would say this is the effectual call, these are the ones who are justified and glorified. Okay, So there's the distinction that is made there. The scriptures sometimes speak about this general call, and then sometimes they speak more specifically about this effectual call, like we see here in Romans 8, verse 30. 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 13 and 14. If I can have somebody read that for us. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you. Brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay, good. So again here you have this effectual call, that last sentence there, to this, the this here referring to belief in the truth, to this or to be saved, to this he called you. Through our gospel, so there's the gen- we see a general call that goes out, but the effectual call is that you have believed it, right? He's called you to believe the truth. What a gift that is! How we how thankful we should be for that, Norm. Also, if you back up a little bit into the verse, yes, it says God chose you. Yes, and the effect of that is a few words down to be saved. That's right. So it's not as if like you know chose you, but Maybe that you, it, there's an, a, an effective purpose. That's right. Amen. Absolutely. Um, uh, another good passage that the, uh, the writers didn't cite here. They didn't consult me on this. So, um, 
But is, is John chapter 10, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and flip there with me uh, real quick. I want to help you to see the, the, the as kind of Norm was saying there, the, re, the definite reality that those who have been chosen will come to Christ, will be effectually drawn uh, to Christ. And here in John chapter 10, Jesus talking about himself as the good shepherd I'm going to start at verse 14 and just read down through verse 16. Starting at verse 14, it says, I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. Now notice what he says there. I must bring them also, and notice this, and they will listen to my voice. It's not that they might listen to my voice, they will listen to my voice, because it's been ordained before the foundation of the world that the sheep of Christ would be given ears to hear what the Spirit says. Again, what a gift that has been, has been given to us, that we hear the truth and are drawn to Christ. Now, perhaps that didn't happen upon your first hearing of the gospel. Maybe you heard the gospel many times throughout your life before you actually responded to it. But the assurance that we have is for all those who have been elected unto life, they will hear and they will come at the appointed time, known only to God. So those are helpful passages that show us that distinction between the general call and the effectual call. And listen, what God did for that neighbor in the scenario that I painted is what he has done for every one of us, right? You can probably think back to times when you heard the gospel where you didn't really give it any attention. And then at some point, God awakened you to the truth, Maybe you kind of heard generally about Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross all your life. And then one, at one appointed time, that clicked. Now, you may not know, not, not know exactly when that happened, but it did happen. And your life was radically transformed and continues to be radically transformed going forward. And the confession kind of elaborates on this as it moves into this next sentence. It continues to flesh out what this effectual calling looks like. Look at the second sentence here. It says, He calls them out of their natural state of sin and death to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Now, as Desmond walked us through the chapter on free will last week, we were reminded of the reality that because of our natural union with Adam and the effects of his rebellion against God, All of us are conceived in and therefore come into this world in a state of sin and death. And we see this explicitly stated in Ephesians 2, verses 1 through 3. If somebody can read that for us. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of the world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is not working the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and 
were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Okay, good. So, again, there's, there's that miserable condition that we are all naturally in. But, but as the confession says here, that's the state that God calls his elect out of. As Paul says here in Ephesians 2, it's the state in which we once lived, not that we currently live in. And that is so because God has called us from that state to the state of grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, as verses 4 through 6 go on to say here in Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, so that's the, that's the blessing that the confession is speaking of here. We've been called into this state of grace and salvation by Jesus Christ. Now this next sentence, as it continues to elaborate on this, says, He enlightens their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. And again, we we contrast this with what our natural condition was. Somebody want to read 1 Corinthians 2.14? The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Okay. So, man, a really helpful passage when, when you think about the general call of the gospel, right? Uh, we we want to make sure that we get the gospel right, but sometimes we look at ourselves and think, man, I must not be explaining this correctly. Why would they not receive this? This is such good news. <laughs> and this passage is really helpful that, that helps us to see the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God. They're folly to him, Right? You can give the best gospel presentation of your life, and unless the Spirit of God attends to that preached word and awakens that person, it will remain foolishness to that person. Because that is the blindness of our minds to the truth of God. But here's what Paul says a little earlier in 1 Corinthians 2.12, for the people of God for that time where he has called us unto himself. He says, now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, notice this, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. Right? So passages like this are really helpful. You know, when you become a Christian, you probably initially think that I heard the gospel and I responded to it. Right? I I understood it. I don't know why other people aren't understanding it. (laughs) Right? And you, cut, you bump into passages like this and you realize, now I see why I understood it. It wasn't my intellectual prowess, right? It was the Spirit of God opening my mind to these truths. To the point that how many of us have been in church for so long, yeah. and then we end up seeing that yeah. clearly the way God wants us to Absolutely. see Absolutely. Yeah, it, it's, it's amazing as you continue to read through the Word you know, as you're a believer in Christ, you recognize, okay, this is why I came to Christ. This is why I believed, right? I, I believed, but now I know why I believed. Um, so that's, that's really helpful. This is the effectual call of the gospel. 
So in addition to enlightening our minds, the next sentence says that God takes away our heart of stone. Confession cites here Ezekiel 36 that we'll look at in just a minute uh, that this passage is, or this statement is drawn from. Uh, that those hearts of stone refer to hearts that are insensitive to the things of God, to God and his ways, right? It, it doesn't affect us, right? We may have had a form of religiosity before we became Christians, but the power of God working in our hearts was something completely foreign to us. Seeing God and desiring to know him was not the passion of our lives. Our hearts were insensitive to God uh, and, and his ways. I remember having a conversation uh, with, with a guy who came over to my house to do something. I can't remember exactly what it was. Something that I was unable to do, which is a lot around my house. Um, but uh, got an opportunity to start talking to him about the gospel and everything like that. And we were talking about this passage. And I, I was sharing with him, I said, you know, our hearts are naturally opposed to the things of God. They're insensitive to the things of God. Um, and we were outside and I was like, if I, if I took a blowtorch and I ran it across this concrete right here, the concrete wouldn't have any effect. It wouldn't like scream out, stop blowtorching me or, or anything like that. But if I put your foot on that concrete and I started with the blowtorch and went across the concrete and then hit your foot, you'd have a reaction because your foot is sensitive. It's alive. And that's what happens when God takes out that heart of stone and he puts in a heart of flesh, becomes sensitive to the things of God. Right? And we can all testify, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, God didn't have any beauty to you before your conversion. But then he gave you a new heart, and now you see Jesus Christ, and you want to just know him more. Now we fight and we battle the flesh still, so we're not, we're not there yet. But that's the reality of what happens in our lives. God takes out that heart of stone that's insensitive to him. He gives the heart of flesh hearts that are now aware of what God has done for us in Christ, hearts that are aware of our sinfulness against God, hearts that desire to know God and to make him known. Uh, that's the beauty of what God has done for us in Christ. Now, going on to this next sentence, we read additionally that he renews their wills and by his almighty power turns them to good and effectually draws them to Jesus Christ. Now, a couple passages that the confession cites here, really helpful when we think, think about the almighty power of God. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6. Somebody want to read that for us? And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring, so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul that you may live. Okay, good. So notice, notice the power of God here. He's going to circumcise your heart and then notice the purpose clause here. So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. Now, we're progressively working up to that. One day we'll know it in all its beauty. But the reality that it's, it's a passion in our hearts is the almighty power of God working in us. God has circumcised our hearts. Here comes the command. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. 
And then this passage is really helpful. It shows God's going to circumcise your heart so that that command becomes a reality in your life because you naturally can't obey that. You don't want to obey that. But God does it. He takes out that heart of stone, gives you a heart of flesh. Ezekiel 36, verse 27. God says, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. We don't ever rejoice in and of ourselves at the end of a day that we obeyed God, or we ought not to. We ought to say, thank you for causing me to walk in obedience to your commands today. It wasn't something that I drummed up within myself. It was the Spirit of God working in me that caused any good fruit to come out of my life. And, you know, as we, as we again, think about this reality that our wills must be renewed, when we think about the fact that our wills are bound to our sinful nature, as Desmond taught on last week, it makes sense to us that the only hope we have is for God by his almighty power to renew our wills and to turn us to good. And listen, this ought to inflame our prayers for those who are not believers. You see the hardness of a person's heart? Is that a match for almighty God? To take out that heart of stone and to give a heart of flesh? You only need to look in the mirror to answer that question. Right? You're, you're, you look in the mirror, you see a miracle that God has taken out a heart of stone and he's given a heart of flesh. And so that should invigorate our prayer lives. They are so hardened right now, but I know that in this moment, you can take out that heart of stone and you can give a heart of flesh. Love the example of Paul on the road to Damascus. What a vivid illustration of the power of God. Now, our conversion may it not have looked like that, but it was as powerful as that because a heart of stone was taken away and a heart of flesh was given by the almighty power of God. And then finally, this paragraph closes by saying that God does all this in such a way that his elect come completely freely since they are made willing by his grace. Experientially, we know this to be true, right? No one who truly comes to Jesus Christ for salvation comes kicking and screaming, right? I didn't want to be in heaven, but I was elect before the foundation of the world, so here I am. Nope. <laughs> said no one ever. God changes our will to behold the beauty of his son. And now we see for the first time and we come joyfully and willingly to him. A great passage that kind of sums all of this first paragraph up is found in Acts 16, the story of Lydia. And I want to go ahead and read this in verses 13 through 15. It says, And on the Sabbath day, we, Paul and his companions there, went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, 
who was a worshiper of God. Now notice what happened here. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. Our dependence is utterly upon God to do what we can, right? I can't hold somebody's attention when I'm sharing the gospel with them. You can't hold somebody's attention when you're sharing the gospel with them. Maybe in the natural realm, you can try to do something, to, but, but you can't get into their hearts to make them pay attention to what you are saying. Only the Lord can do this. And so this is, this is a good example here. Nothing is said about these other women. Uh, so we're to assume that they heard what Paul said, but they didn't pay attention. And why did they not pay attention? Is because their hearts were hardened and darkened to the truth of what Paul was saying. But the Lord had mercy on Lydia, opened her heart and caused her to pay attention to what was said by Paul. And after that, she's baptized her and her household and, and begs Paul, stay, <laughs> stay with us. And that, that's what happens when a heart is changed. You want to be with the people of God. You want to be around the word of God. You want to hear more about this grace that you have been given. All right, that's all for paragraph one. Questions or comments on paragraph one before we move on here? Dave. Yes. Yep. Yep. Absolutely. We are actually going to come to that passage here. And that's a really good passage as well in that parable that Jesus gives. One of the things he says about the, uh, the unbelievers as the prophets are sent to them is that they paid no attention to what was said. And you contrast that with what you see here in Acts 16. Lydia, her heart was open to pay attention to what the Lord had said. So yes, that's actually a uh, passage that the confession cites here down in the last paragraph, paragraph 4. So we'll be coming back to that one in Matthew 22. George. The fact that he pauses this, you know, yeah. his laws aren't burdens to us. Yes. We see them as a fragrance. Amen. That's right. Amen. Absolutely. Yeah, our hearts are changed now to, to love that law that we once despised. Amen. Okay, let's move on. Oh, Peter, go ahead. Yeah, go for it. Amen. Amen. Good, good word there. All right, let's move on to paragraph two. This time is quickly getting away from me. Uh, somebody want to read paragraph two there? This effectual call flows from God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in those called. 
Neither does it all arise from any power or action on their part. They are totally passive in it. They are dead in sins and trespasses until they are made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. By this, they are enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. This response is enabled by a power that is no less than that which raised Christ from the dead. Amen. Thank you, Forrest. Um, okay, so looking at that, that first sentence there, uh, there's been throughout the history of the church an erroneous teaching that has essentially said that God looked down the corridors of time to see who it is that would repent and believe the gospel. And on the basis of those who would do that, he elected them for salvation. So this is, this is before the foundation of the world. God looking down corridors of time that don't exist as of yet, seeing who would repent and believe. And on the basis of those who would repent and believe, he elects them unto eternal life. However, the confession rightly contradicts and corrects that false teaching by reminding us that this effectual of call of God toward his elect does not arise from anything at all foreseen in those called. This call does not arise from any power or action on their part. And you see this reality in what Paul is inspired to say to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, verses 8 and 9, which says, Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So that free working of God, when we talk about free will, God is the one who has free will to do as he pleases. And it pleased him before the foundation of the world to save sinners. An amazing reality that we're counted in that number. Now, in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, uh, we see this clearly laid out as well. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. The confession goes on to say here that we're totally passive in it. And the reason for that is because by nature we're dead in trespasses and sins, until we're made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit. Now, this, this being made alive and renewed by the Holy Spirit is being born again or regenerated. In other words, we are spiritually in the grave until God makes us alive, and he makes us alive through the preaching of the gospel. Jesus in John 5.25 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. Hallelujah. To our amazement, again, uh, we, we heard the gospel. That, that shouldn't ever cease to amaze us, that we wake up. The first thing we should think is, I'm in Christ. This is amazing. I'm a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. I've been reconciled to God. 
I'm on my way to glory to be with him for all of eternity. Man, that just changes your outlook on everything that's going on in your life. Now, the confession goes on to say in this next sentence that by this, and that this is referring to God making us spiritually alive, by this they are enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it or in this call. This response is enabled by a power that is no less than that which raised Christ from the dead. That, that's an awesome statement. It's, it's filled with um, just theological richness. And I want to just park on that uh, for, for a moment here. Remember the story of Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. That's, that's a picture of what happens in the spiritual realm to every one of God's elect. That's also a picture of what's going to happen on the last day, being raised to glory. It's just You think about the situation with Lazarus, right? I mean, that's just an amazing reality. Jesus raises him, but then he's got to go back through that pathway again. <laughs> he's, got to, he's got to die again. But anyway, I digress. Remember, in the raising of Lazarus, this is something that's very important for us to see. Jesus gave a command to Lazarus to come forth, right? To come out of the tomb. Now, that's an impossible command to obey. Unless, along with the command, is the power and ability given to obey that command. Right? Jesus says, Lazarus, come forth or come out. There's a command going to Lazarus. But the power accompanies that command in order for it to be obeyed. And so it is with every sinner who comes to Christ. The command to repent and believe the gospel goes forth. And toward the elect of God, that command is accompanied by the power to obey that command. It's a power that raises us from the dead spiritually and causes us to repent and believe. And through this, God effectually calls us to Christ. And again, the confession rightly notes that this power in raising us from the dead spiritually is the same power that raised Christ from the dead. I want you to turn with me, actually, to Ephesians 1 to see where the confession is going with this. Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm just going to read verses 18 through 20, and then I'm going to jump down to chapter 2. Okay, so Paul's prayer here for these believers in Ephesus, starting in verse 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So there's three things he's praying for for them. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might? Now notice the correlation here. That he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So Paul says, I want you to know that power, that immeasurable power. It's the same power that raised Christ from the dead. And then drop down to chapter 2. And here's the connection here. Christ was dead, chapter 2, verse 1, and you were dead 
in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Go with me to verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So that's an awesome reality. The same power that raised Christ from the dead is the same power that has raised us from the dead. What hope that we have in the gospel. That's the powerful working of God. That's the power of the effectual call of God toward his people. Now, let's go to, for the sake of time, let's go to paragraph three. Now, again, if you have questions, hit the green box on your way out. But let's go to paragraph three now. And I'll go ahead and read this. Elect infants dying in infancy are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. The same is true of every elect person who is incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the Word. Um, As you can imagine, this this paragraph is not without controversy. Um, Some have thought that it would be best to just keep it out of the confession uh, altogether, and, and some don't subscribe to this portion um, of the confession. Maybe you're one of them. That being said, I, I do think it is a helpful paragraph that seeks to be faithful to what is explicitly stated in the Bible as well as what is implied. When we think about effectual calling, the, the question, one of the questions that may arise is how do infants who were elected before the foundation of the world unto salvation and yet are unable to respond to the gospel call because they are not cognitively developed yet, enter into that salvation that they were elected for. Well, the same way that every other elect person does and that they must be born again to get into the kingdom of heaven. As Jesus states in John chapter 3. They must be born again and they must be saved by Christ through the Spirit. Now, is there mystery in that? Yes, there there is. And I think that's one of the reasons that the confession includes it. They must be born again, as John chapter 3 and as the confession cites here, in order to enter in to heaven. As remember from our study in chapter 6 of the confession, which dealt with the fall of man's sin and its punishment, all of us from conception are guilty before God because of our union with Adam. So even though infants haven't committed any actual sins, at least that we're aware of, they are nonetheless still guilty before God because of the original sin inherited from Adam. Therefore, they must be born again in order to enter the kingdom of God. And so the confession here says that those elect infants who die are regenerated and saved by Christ through the Spirit who works when and where and how he pleases. Right? So again, it's a, it's a difficult uh, concept, but we have to be faithful to what the scriptures teach regarding the nature of man 
and the nature of how any who are to get into heaven actually get there, and they must be born again. And so the confession here says that this is unique in its operation, right? Most are hearing the gospel, understanding it, repenting, believing. Uh, Infants aren't capable of that type of cognitive thinking as of yet. And the confession says here, much like every other person who is incapable of being outwardly called by the ministry of the word here. And that reference obviously would be to those who are mentally handicapped in such a way that they're unable to understand and respond to the preached word. So I I think personally that it should be in the confession as opposed to some of my brothers, uh, not necessarily here, maybe you're one of them, um, but but others that I respect much um, because I think it rightly makes allowance for these categories of elect people and how they come to Christ and the truths that we see in scripture of how one must attain unto eternal life. So you probably don't have any questions about that paragraph, so let's move on to paragraph four. I have a question, but because of what you said, maybe you don't want me to ask a question. Well, I've got two minutes to finish up paragraph four, so, but no, if you do have a question, get it into the, get it into the box, because um, it's, it's worthy of further, further discussion, definitely. All right, paragraph four. Can somebody read that for us? Those who are not elected will not and cannot truly come to Christ and therefore cannot be saved because they are not effectually drawn by the Father. And they may even be called by the ministry of the Word and may receive some ordinary working of the Spirit without being saved. Much less can any be saved who do not receive the Christian religion, no matter how diligently they live their lives according to the life of nature and the teachings of the religion they profess. Okay, thanks, Jeremy. All right, so the beginning of this paragraph addresses those who are not elect and who therefore will not and cannot truly come to Christ. And again, it's important to remember here that no man on his own truly desires to come to Christ. There is none who seeks God. No, not one. So there will be no objection on that last day that a person really wanted to come to Christ but wasn't elect and therefore couldn't truly come, right? That won't be said of any man because no man by nature seeks for God. The elect only will come to Christ and the elect only come to Christ because they have been mercifully and effectually drawn by the Father. So while some get mercy and others get justice, no one gets injustice because all are worthy of wrath. And there will be many, Scripture tells us, who have been called by the general ministry of the word. This is what Dave alluded to earlier, Matthew twenty-two fourteen. 14. For many are called, but few are chosen. And that just that verse alone should put us on our face before God. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the fact that you are given ears to hear the truth as it is in Jesus. Further, the confession states here, there will be those who have received some ordinary working of the Spirit without being saved. And it cites here Matthew 13, the parable of the four soils. Here Jesus says, as for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Right? So 
looks like a Christian initially, yet he has no root in himself but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately he falls away. So there will be those who have received some ordinary working of the Spirit, those who have been in the congregation of the people of God, who have sat under the preached word, who have participated in the things of the Spirit, who actually aren't truly Christ's. And then finally, this chapter closes by saying this, much less can any be saved who did not receive the Christian religion, no matter how diligently they live their lives according to the light of nature and the teachings of the religion they profess. Uh, these passages that we're going to look at here uh, make it plain for us that no matter how sincere a person may be in his or her religion, it is a false religion that is opposed to the true and living God. It is through Christ and Christ alone that a man must be saved. Acts 4.12, Peter testifying here, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Jesus himself testifies and says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Okay, so those passages make very plain that however sincere a person may be in whatever religion is that they are practicing, that they will not stand righteous in the sight of God, for it is through Christ and Christ alone that a man must come. Again, as we think through this lesson, and I'm sorry we had to go through it as quick as we did, you know, I really pray that it creates within us humble and thankful hearts as we think about God's mercy to us and choosing us for salvation and affectionately calling us to this salvation. And, and now we have the joyful privilege of being used by God to go and proclaim this salvation that he may effectually draw more of his elect to Christ through us. Amen? Amen. Amen. Any questions? Put them in the box, please. Thank you. Let's pray.